Hello, everybody. This week on the Tammy True Podcast, we're going to be recapping our most recent Journal Club discussion. We have a couple articles here that are going to be touching on the care of patients with atrial fibrillation, and a third article that's going to be looking at the care of patients presenting to the emergency department with chest pain. Let's start first with the matter of atrial fibrillation, and we're going to first look at the use of magnesium as an adjunct to the treatment of AFib with RVR, and then we're going to turn our focus to the development of an outpatient treatment pathway. You know, sort of think ED OBS for AFib with RVR. Dr. Murphy-Cruz, you are the lead on the magnesium paper. Tell us how uh, the miraculous sterile salt that is magnesium can help with these patients. Well, hello, everyone. This is Aaron Murphy-Cruz. I'm one of the third-year residents at the University of Cincinnati. Uh, The paper that I was talking about was the Boyda et al. paper, which is coming out in Academic Emergency Medicine this year, 2018. And it's the Lomaghi study, or the low-dose magnesium sulfate versus high-dose in early management of rapid atrial fibrillation. The concept of using magnesium in atrial fibrillation is not a new one. So there's a lot of literature, mostly in cardiac surgery patients, which shows that magnesium is efficacious in treating atrial fibrillation postoperatively. There hasn't been a lot of literature supporting the use of this in the ED population, however, and that's where this comes in. The mechanism that they purport is that magnesium inhibits the calcium channels, so has a similar mechanism action to calcium channel blockers, which is one of our mainstays in the U.S., and so at least has some reason to believe that this would be a monoagent. And in fact, has been previously shown in some very small trials either to be equivalent to diltiazem or not at all efficacious, depending on which of these small studies you're reading, which is really where the Lomagi paper comes in. So of all the papers that have evaluated ED populations in magnesium, This is one of the largest and the best powered, and it's also one of the few that actually compares magnesium as an adjunct to standard of care as opposed to a monotherapy, where I think it's less likely to have a role given that we have a lot of agents we're currently using with good evidence. So what did this paper do? They took 450 adults presenting to emergency departments in Tunisia. They had three academic centers that they were looking at. They had some exclusion criteria for people who are hypotensive, who had Uh, wide complex tachycardias or class 3, class 4 heart failure. But otherwise, they took all comers with atrial fibrillation. They randomized them to one of three groups. So the intervention groups are magnesium sulfate, and that would be 4.5 grams in one group, 9 grams in another group, or placebo. And this was double-blinded, and the pharmacy was involved making sure that all of those interventions were blinded across uh, treatment groups. So they compared these to the magnesium groups to placebo, and then they looked at a primary outcome of therapeutic response, which they defined as a heart rate of less than 90 or greater than 20% decrease from their initial heart rate at a time of four hours and at 24 hours. And then they also had secondary outcomes, including the time to response, the frequency of conversion to normal sinus rhythm, as well as certain adverse events that they had predefined. What did they find? What they found was that there's a significant increase in rate control at 4 hours and at 24 hours for both of the magnesium groups. So those given 4.5 grams or those given 9 grams both had a therapeutic response more frequently than those given placebo. In terms of adverse events, they certainly found that there were more adverse events in the magnesium groups and substantially more in the 9 grams group. And just as an aside, 9 grams is a lot of magnesium, uh, even for an obstetrician. So most of these events, however, were primarily flushing, which I think we can wonder kind of the clinical significance of that as a, quote, adverse event. Um, But nevertheless, they found that significant increase in adverse events uh, and a slight increase in the number of conversions to sinus rhythm uh, compared to the placebo group. So what are the strengths and weaknesses of this paper? I think overall, the strengths of this paper is that it is a well 
conducted randomized controlled trial. Methodologically, this is a sound paper, and they have a good protocol overall. There is, in my mind, a relatively low standard of proof that would be required to incorporate magnesium, as especially the low-dose group is a relatively safe and benign medicine that we're comfortable using in an ICU setting, replacing lights every day, every morning. And so this isn't a therapy I have a lot of concern about in terms of its safety profile overall. And I would say that they do note overall that this has some effectiveness and shows better outcomes. What are the critiques of this paper? Um, I think this is kind of where my concerns with this paper for our applicability come up, and that is that they allow the treating physician to use standard of care aside from the intervention. So all these people are randomized in terms of their magnesium, but the treating physicians are using standard of care, which in Tunisia in the years 2009 to 2014 was primarily digoxin. So 50% of these people got digoxin as their primary rate control, and then the remaining 50% were split relatively evenly between calcium channel blockers and beta blockers. So arguably, only half of these people got a therapy that we would frequently see people getting in a U.S. emergency room as a mainstay of primary treatment for atrial fibrillation rate control. And unfortunately, there aren't any subgroup analyses to see whether or not the calcium channel and beta blocker groups differed from digoxin groups. So it's unclear mechanistically whether or not this has a primary effect in this paper, whether or not it was uh, synergistic with some of those other agents, and whether or not it mattered if people were using calcium channel blockers, beta blockers, or digoxin. So I think overall, it was a well-conducted study. I think that its results are very interesting. I think it's somewhat limited in its application to our practice, only in that half of the patients were treated with digoxin, which I'm not usually going to use as a first-line agent for someone, um, and certainly not unless that's a heart failure patient, which would have been excluded from the study in any case. So overall, I think my takeaway is interesting study, something that can be experimented relatively safely in clinical practice, but something that probably needs some additional evidence to fully support off before this is something we can start recommending as a guideline-based or a kind of part of our common practice pathways. Excellent. So now we're going to turn our focus to a paper published this summer in Academic Emergency Medicine by Ba and colleagues entitled, Creation and Implementation of an Outpatient Pathway for Atrial Fibrillation in the Emergency Department. Now, as stated by the authors, there's significant variation in the management of patients with atrial fibrillation with rapid ventricular response. Comparing management of these patients in the United States as compared to Canada, patients in America are much more likely to be admitted to the hospital, and these admissions can cost up to $3 billion annually. It is the contention of these authors that a not insubstantial portion of these admissions could be avoided if their, if their care was shifted to an expedited outpatient treatment pathway. The objective of this paper was to define the processes by which an outpatient treatment pathway could be implemented and to arrive at a consensus medical management pathway that could serve as an example algorithm for institutions looking to implement such a pathway. The goals of this paper are quite laudable. Imagine a patient presenting to the ED with AFib with RVR with a questionable duration of symptoms. If you could get rate control rapidly in that patient, establish follow-up, educate the patients on their symptoms, assess their need for anticoagulation based on stroke risk and bleeding risk, and ensure stability of their symptoms, is there anything else that an inpatient environment gets that patient? What about the patient that has recent onset of symptoms that you're able to cardiovert? What does that patient gain from an admission? So what do they do and how do they do it? 
The authors used a modified Delphi approach to arrive at a consensus for two things. First, they arrived at a consensus for the best practices for implementing outpatient treatment pathways. And second, they arrived at a consensus for a medical management protocol for atrial fibrillation with rapid ventricular response. The Delphi process, so named after the famed Oracle of Delphi, involves an iterative process of voting and summarizing to arrive at a consensus. And generally speaking, when evaluating papers with consensus methodologies, you should look at a couple things to have faith in the results. First, ensure that the expert panel is comprehensive and has adequate qualifications to be included in such a panel. Second, see whether or not they were making decisions based on accurate information. That is to say, did they do a literature search and was it both up-to-date and comprehensive? Third, look to see whether or not the authors are explicit in their methods as to how the iterative process was conducted. In the case of this paper, the expert panel represented a broad swath of stakeholders for the care of these patients, both academic and community ED docs, cardiologists, internal medicine doctors, advanced practice providers, pharmacists, and nursing. They consulted a research librarian to build a comprehensive list of references for the panel, which included a thorough appearing PubMed and gray literature search strategy, but they didn't really conduct a full systematic review of the literature. The author's consensus methods are pretty well described, and they, sta- they use the standard of majority opinion to define consensus. One thing that was not explicitly stated in their consensus methodology was whether or not the voting process was anonymous. Generally speaking, I think we can have faith that the pathway derived from this process truly reflects the majority opinion of expert providers invested in the care of these patients. So what did the pathways look like? The first consensus pathway, which was defining the process by which one can implement an outpatient treatment pathway consistent of a five-phase process. It flows from initially acquiring local data and identifying local leaders and stakeholders, and then flows to planning out the protocol, developing some key components of the protocol, launching and maintaining the protocol. Some of the key metrics they identify for monitoring the success of the protocol include and include endpoints we would expect from any observation protocol, length of stay, admit percentage, volume, and the AFib-specific quality metrics include documentation of risk stratification tools for stroke risk and bleeding risk, follow-up at 30 days to assess for recurrence and bleeding adverse events, anticoagulation regimen used, et cetera, et cetera. The consensus medical management protocol excludes those with significant comorbid conditions like decompensated heart failure, severe renal disease, hemodynamic instability, and significant social barriers to care, that is to say mostly a lack of follow-up. For patients eligible for the protocol, attempts are made at cardioversion and rhythm control for patients with the onset of symptoms within 48 hours or documentation of adequate anticoagulation for four weeks prior to the initial presentation. Whether the cardioversion was electrical or chemical, and even the type of chemical cardioversion was an area of continued practice variation for the panel, and they weren't able to arrive at a consensus. After rhythm control, if patients were in sinus rhythm for greater than one hour, they were determined to be eligible for discharge. For patients with unknown onset of symptoms or inadequate anticoagulation, rate control with either diltiazem or metoprolol was the consensus treatment. If the patients had adequate rate control in the ED or at 12 hours of observation, they were eligible for discharge. And the consensus panel recommended evaluating all patients for anticoagulation based on stroke risk and bleeding risk. If the patient failed cardioversion or rate control, they recommended admission to the hospital. So what do we take away from this paper? I think this paper is a helpful resource for anyone looking to establish an ED-based observation pathway and treatment protocol for patients with AFib with RVR. We see these patients frequently, and we'll only see them more frequently in the future with our aging population. 
for the institution with the resources to conduct observation protocols. This paper can serve as a helpful roadmap for the development of a local protocol. Now we'll turn to Dr. Scanlon, who's going to discuss the care of patients presenting to the emergency department with chest pain and specifically look at what is now a very commonly used pathway, the heart pathway, and how it performs a year out from initial ED visits. Good afternoon, everyone. This is Matt Scanlon. I'm one of the third-year emergency medicine residents here at the University of Cincinnati Medical Center. Uh, unfortunately, I'm the only one of the three who did not come up with a script before the podcast. Shame on me for thinking this would be more of a chill hang, but here we go. This will be a little bit by the seat of my pants. Um, so we are looking at the Heart Pathway Randomized Trial One-Year Outcome Study. This is actually by Mahler um, and his boys down at Wake Forest. So they were the uh, authors behind the original Heart Pathway Study um, and just a little bit of background on that. So basically, they uh, took patients presenting to the emergency department with chest pain um, and randomized them to one of two different pathways. Uh, either they went to the heart pathway, which uses the heart score to kind of risk stratify them, and then the low-risk chest pain was sent home. The non-low-risk was uh, admitted either to the hospital or to their observation unit for objective testing, with objective t- testing meaning either cardiocatheterization or stress testing. Um, so that was one arm of it, and the, the second arm was uh, actually patients uh, randomized to what was considered usual care, and that's kind of loosely defined. It was really up to the attending emergency physician. Um, so had a total of 282 patients, 141 were randomized to each arm. Um, the inclusion criteria were pretty loose. Uh, basically, uh, the emergency medicine attending just had to have concern for acute coronary syndrome, um, and they just had to order an EKG and a, a serum troponin. And that was uh, kind of the baseline criteria for inclusion in the study. Their primary endpoint was looking at uh, major adverse cardiac events um, within the first 30 days. Uh, And major adverse cardiac events, or what I'm going to refer to as MACE, are defined as uh, a composite endpoint of cardiac mortality, myocardial ischemia or infarction, and uh, left heart catheterization with uh, angioplasty or stent placement. They also were looking at secondary endpoints, uh, including objective test use, And again, objective test meaning um, either angiography, percutaneous coronary angiography, or um, some modality of stress testing, be that MRI or nuclear or uh, just EKG. So they were looking at that. That was one of their secondary endpoints, the second being non-indexed cardiac admission. So basically patients coming back to the hospital and getting admitted either to the observation unit or to the floor for uh, further cardiac testing uh, due to concern for some kind of coronary or cardiac pathology. So they found this, that's all, this is all the initial study. And they found that at, no, at 30 days, there were no major adverse cardiac events in either of the two groups. Um, it, but they found that the patients that were randomized to the heart pathway actually had 12% lower utilization of object, objective testing compared to the uh, usual care group. Um, so their conclusion was, at 30 days at least, the heart pathway was safe, uh, did not lead to increased utilization, and if anything, led to decreased utilization of resources, um, meaning that it's the best thing since sliced bread. This subsequent study now is looking at the same population just one year out, uh, and this was quite quite a feat. Um, they basically had, they actually had greater than 90% follow-up, which is pretty impressive for a study at one year. The endpoints are exactly the same. They're just kind of seeing, you know, long-term, do the, uh, does the heart pathways reduce utilization kind of bear out? Do patients with low heart scores still have low incidence of, uh, you know, major adverse cardiac events, um, similar to what has been found in the, uh, the Dutch studies? So what they found is 
in patients that were randomized to the heart pathway and were found to have low-risk chest pain, um, 0% of them had a major adverse cardiac event at one year. So that is a negative predictive value of 100%. Essentially, anyone who came in and was deemed low-risk by the heart pathway did not have any kind of major issue at one year, um, which makes it seem great. You know, that's, that's a fabulous result. Unfortunately, the decreased utilization of objective testing did not bear out. Um, when they look at kind of the composite of all objective testing within the first year, they found that, well, overall there is there was lower utilization in patients randomized to the heart pathway compared to those that received usual care by about 8%. Um, this was not statistically significant as it had been previously. And they actually found that if you did not consider their index or initial presentation when they were essentially randomized, um, and the testing that was done based on that, uh, patients that were randomized to the heart pathway actually had more subsequent objective testing. So it seems like it, it may spare them testing initially, but in the long term, they actually underwent more, whether that's angiography or stress testing or what have you. The, the kind of corollary to that is they found no difference in major adverse cardiac events between patients randomized between the two arms uh, at one year, and there was no difference in the number of uh, non-index cardiac hospitalizations. So they had the same kind of outcomes, um, and they still were admitted to the hospital about the same rates between the two arms. Uh, I think the strengths of the study is that it kind of supports the literature that the heart score is pretty well designed, at least for an emergent population, uh, to discriminate low-risk chest pain. Um, from non-low-risk chest pain. And uh, one of their, their takeaways was that because it has this robust negative predictive value, maybe it, it could be utilized to reduce um, resource utilization. You know, mm-hmm. uh, Maybe these patients don't need rapid follow-up with a cardiologist. Maybe they don't need um, you know, a stress test kind of down the line. Maybe uh, just being risk stratified based on the heart pathway is enough. Uh, again, I think more research is probably warranted to kind of define that. But that is one of the, I, I think that was one of the strengths that they you know they found uh, this robust negative predictive value. Uh, the weaknesses overall was a relatively small n. They only had 282 patients. It's not exactly the most robust uh, sample size, um, and they readily admit themselves, even though you know they tout the fact that there were no no major adverse cardiac events in patients with low-risk chest pain as defined by the heart pathway. Um, The study was actually not powered to discriminate the incidence of major adverse cardiac events, so that conclusion is kind of undermined, I think, a little bit. Um, Really, my takeaway, kind of the bottom line, is that uh, a low heart score means low risk. This has been shown kind of time and time again. The heart score is well-validated in European countries and, and now has been validated here in the United States, so low risk Chest pain is via a low heart score means low risk of any kind of serious cardiac pathology. Um, however, if you have a non-low risk heart score, I think you're, as a, an emergency medicine physician, obligated to do a little bit more digging. They probably warrant some form of objective testing. Excellent. Well, thank you, gentlemen, for the uh, conversation and uh, for the recaps of your articles. Um, so I think we have a couple of really interesting articles here, a promising potential adjunctive treatment to uh, helping more rapidly rate control patients with AFib with RVR, although questions remain as to whether or not it really applies to uh, how we treat our patients as we don't tend to use digoxin quite frequently 
the promise of uh, potentially an EDOBS protocol near you, uh, which uh, has atrial fibrillation as the as the headline, um, and then the continued sort of um, uh, evidence base that to support the use of the heart score for risk stratification of uh, of patients presenting to the emergency department with chest pain. Thanks everybody for joining us. So we'll catch you next time on the Tame and True podcast.